Ah, 20-something Neil was a fairly belligerent and moody guy. I think, oh wow, that's a good question. I, I think I would have told him to find, find more people I could cry in front of. Welcome back. Another episode of Dear Men. Um, I have with me here my good friend, Neil. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Mel. And um, today we're going to be talking about one man's story of finding his purpose. And this is coming right on the heels of the last episode, which was also about purpose um, and intention around love life, sex life, dating life. Um, We've done another podcast also about purpose with Jason. And that was sort of more in the general um, scope. But this one I really want to hear. Um, I've heard Neil's story before, and I thought it was really good, which is why he's coming on the podcast. But um, I think it's actually pretty interesting how he went about finding his purpose and um, what it means to him now. So I'll just let him share with us the story. Once upon a time. Once upon a time. <laughs> We all love stories that start like that, don't we? Once upon a time, as my dad tells it, I was a rather devoted reader of books as a young child. And then he likes to say that I got my first book report in second grade, and I hated reading from then on. Wow. Yeah. I actually didn't read a book for leisure between the ages. No, I read one book for leisure between the ages of eight and 20. This is particularly surprising for anyone that knows Neil because he's so brilliant and erudite, which is another word for smart. Well, and well I read and well and learned. Well, I'll try to be erudite and learned and well read <laughs> in my thing, but you've just piled on the pressure here. <laughs> You're welcome. All right, awesome. Anyway, the reason but it's true. I would never have guessed that you growing up wouldn't have been reading books. I, if, you know, if you lined up all my friends, I would have put you as one of the ones that was like, definitely always had a book in his hands, like growing up, like that would have been my assumption. So, which is totally wrong as it turns out. As it turns out. And I think my parents were a little surprised too. What ultimately happened was that something about, maybe it was reading chapter books or it was reading in the broader sense, or I just hated school and didn't realize it. But anything to do with school, I wanted nothing to do with other than getting my homework done. And I went through life. My reading comprehension was rated at 99th percentile in first grade, but by seventh grade, it was in the 54th percentile. Wow. And that was that. I went through and I got through school and I was a theater major in college and I never read anything for class. I skirted by with my A minus average somehow. And that was that. And I graduated with honors without hardly ever having read anything. 
That speaks to the uh, strength of the American school system right there. Just kidding. Yeah. Only a little bit. I'm sure that could be its own episode in and of itself. Anyway, I moved to New York City. I was a theater major, like I said, and I moved to New York City, but was pretty much over the theater thing within a year of graduating. So I was floating around, and I was temping, and unemployed, and not really doing a whole lot. And what then happened was that I started reading books on the subway because I hated the subway. I actually kind of hated New York at the time. I was overwhelmed by the big city. It didn't go well. And I needed an escape. And this was before smartphones and having things right in front of us to watch. So I started reading. And a friend of mine lent me a book. It's called, it was called A Prayer for Owen Meany by John Irving. And while the other books I had read before that were kind of happy-go-lucky, Hollywood-ending kind of books, this one in particular was very much not a Hollywood ending. And it was like completely screwed with my mind. I really didn't know that life could not turn out the way we wanted it to. I, had a Hollywood, I watched movies and TV growing up. That was my sense of that everything would work out. And in this particular story, it didn't. And I went into a really dark space. And I just questioned existence. I was raised Jewish, but I became an atheist. And I went through this huge existential crisis about all of these things that had, I previously believed in and then no longer did. All the while, I don't have any professional direction or anything. But what I did do is read every book I could find by that author. And I read a whole bunch of other fairly ambitious books as well. And the entire time I was investigating how could the written words so profoundly impact my perception of the world around me. Mm. And so then what happened was I got fairly effective at dissecting a story or a written word in general and analyzing why something was or was not effective. I then got a job, an editorial assistant job at Penguin, working in this publisher that did a lot of New York Times bestselling books and both fiction and nonfiction. And I'm working in this job because I just tried to figure out what it was. I was already 27 by this point. And the other people who were editorial assistants were all these people who were English majors at Duke and Amherst and Princeton and those kind of schools. And here was me, a theater major at a kind of blah school and no real academic background and by the way, when I took the SATs in high school, my first SAT verbal score was 330 out of 800. Like, I did not have a functioning brain in high school, at least when it came to verbal. That being said, because I put all the pieces together myself in kind of an autodidactic way, I wound up having really good editorial taste, and sometimes my boss would acquire novels that I recommended or other publishers would buy the ones I recommended to him, and he really believed in my taste. He then moved me into nonfiction books, and I started really having an affinity for how-to books and other nonfiction. <coughs> and so what happened was I decided I didn't want to do the corporate thing anymore. I went out on my own, and I was trying to be a freelance editor, but people weren't hiring the hiring those people back then because this was before self-publishing was such a big deal. <clears throat> and so then I wound up 
realizing that writing was the thing that people were going to hire me for. So I tried to write and I wrote a book proposal that got a six figure advance with HarperCollins and started doing ghostwriting books and doing things like that. This is all nonfiction by this point. And after several years of basically just being a book collaborator, I started to notice how there was this kind of thing going on with some of the most effective nonfiction communicators, TED speakers and authors and things like that. But I wasn't really sure what it was. It just had this kind of vague sense of that there were certain patterns in the way people engaged their audiences, the way people really made a point. And so I was living in central Los Angeles at the time. Oh, you jumped from New York already? Yeah, I moved to New York. I moved from New York to Los Angeles probably about three years after I left Penguin. And I was doing my thing in Los Angeles. And then I was living in central Los Angeles, and I was just doing my thing, writing and book collaborating. But I had this vague sense that there was something greater at play. And so I moved myself from central Los Angeles to Topanga Canyon, which is also in Los Angeles County, but it's this super remote, super rural area with a population of like 8,000. Los Angeles County has 10 million people in it, yet this little community had almost no people in it. And I lived there for three years, which was basically a long-term writer's retreat. I was isolated. I didn't see many people. I couldn't even walk to anything. I had to get in the car to go anywhere at all. And the reason I did that was because I really wanted to put myself on the spot to truly become clear as to what my purpose in my life was really supposed to be. Mm -hmm. A side note is that I had this nonfiction thing going on, but I was also kind of doing some creative writing as well. And so for the first year or so of living in Topanga, I was working every day on a novel. And I just, I tried to do it. I didn't really feel it was something that I was supposed to be working on right now, or at least at that point. And figured out, alongside the working on the novel, that there was this thing that we can call a silver bullet. Okay, I'm going to pause you there. I want to come back to that. But I want to I hear more about the dis, the, this decision to go to Topanga. So you're, you're helping with nonfiction, and you're doing some creative writing yourself, mm-hmm. and you're living in central LA. Are you happy? Like, I'm wondering that decision to go and be like, okay, I really got to get serious. I want to figure out what my life is going to be about or mm-hmm. what my purpose is. Like, what was the impetus for that? Basically, I was feeling a sense of unrest. I was feeling while I was capable at my job and I was helping my clients to get results like getting published by HarperCollins and promoting books on shows nationally like Ellen and Dr. Oz and all this kind of highfalutin stuff. I was not succeeding in getting across how important certain things about communication were to my clients. I would fulfill certain tasks for them as they envisioned them, but I was kind of a yes man. I was saying, yeah, I can do that for you. Yeah, I can do that for you. And that's really all that happened. And I felt that there was this larger thing that was going on that the most effective communicators were doing and that it was 
absolutely a crime that especially some of my clients were getting these great opportunities to speak on national television and stuff, and they were kind of shanking their opportunities. They weren't doing as good of a job explaining their ideas. So they got the opportunity, but then they wouldn't be as good on Ellen as you wanted them to be, for example. Right. Okay. Right, exactly. They were doing things that were well-meaning, but they would get maybe a B or a B- minus in their execution, and it seemed possible that I could help these people to really get an A or an A+. Plus. So you felt like there was something missing. Right. Like you, you were doing this job and you were doing a pretty good job, but you knew there was something bigger at play that you couldn't quite put your finger on. And in terms of your own personal fulfillment, it sounds like it was tied to that. Like you weren't as fulfilled as you wanted to be because you kind of wanted your people to hit it out of the park. Right. Okay. I sort of liken it to having a 500-piece jigsaw puzzle. And you have 499 pieces, and there's that one missing piece, and you don't know where it is. Do you feel good about finishing that puzzle? No, because you haven't actually finished the puzzle. It's there, the piece is missing, and if you're anything like me, you would not ever want to do that puzzle again, knowing that that missing piece was always going to plague you. And so that's what it felt like with your clients. Right. Okay. There was this missing piece, and I honestly didn't want to do the work unless I solved that puzzle. Hmm. I couldn't see myself doing it if my if I was just setting my clients up for only doing a B or a B minus. Yeah. Okay, so you you were like, I've got to figure out this missing piece thing. I'm gonna basically take myself on a writer's retreat. Did you know at the time it was gonna be as long as it was? Or was it like, oh I'll go to Topanga for a few months? I was thinking it would be a year. Oh, okay. And were you planning on like totally like, like, did you save up so that you would be like, all I'm doing for this year is figuring this out? Or were you working oh, that year as well? It's more the former in that I had made a decent amount of money ghostwriting a certain book and got paid everything in a fairly concentrated manner. And so I had a little bit to go by, a little bit of a nest egg that I could spend more time figuring this stuff out and less time actually working for clients. Cool. And you were also working on your own creative writing at the time. Is that partly because you weren't sure, like, maybe I want to be a novelist? Like, let me figure out what I'm really doing. Is that going to be creative writing or is it going to be this missing puzzle piece for my clients? I would say that because I didn't have too much work because I didn't have too much work to do my, for myself, I was able to kind of do both. Even when I left Penguin years earlier, I had also wanted to do yoga teaching, teach some yoga. And so I tried that and the editing writing thing at the same time. And the editing writing thing is just the thing that moved forward. Yeah. And so I think I had a similar, well, we'll wait and see what this turns into kind yeah. of thing. Okay, so now you're in Topanga. Now I'm in Topanga. You're writing every day. Writing every day. And every day, true to my intention, wondering, what the hell am I doing here? There was nobody around. I was in this teeny tiny basement-like apartment in a one-bedroom house that my landlord, who was a very nice man, had turned this little kind of cinder block basement thing into an apartment. It was very nice, but it was also maybe 150 square feet. It was tiny. I didn't have an oven, and it was beautiful. I had windows on three sides, but it was this 
it wasn't a grown-up's apartment. And so it did the trick. I constantly questioned what I was doing there and constantly reminded myself of what I was doing there. And I started creating workshops that I invited my friends to on how to engage people more with your content, whether you're speaking or you're writing. And I gave the workshop a few times and I started working with some more clients eventually. But what the interesting side note is that I wasn't succeeding at attracting enough work. And I actually, in 2014, in the middle of my time in Topanga, I had to start driving for Lyft. And so while I did have that little nest egg originally, that ran out. Mm -hmm. And I had to figure out a way to make ends meet. And then I started getting a little bit of work here and there. So I'm back and forth between Lyft and working for clients and working for Lyft and working for clients. And then finally, I got a project that... I was trying to explain to the client, I was working with him on a book proposal and I was trying to explain to him what I called a binding theoretical construct, which is possibly the worst three words ever put together in the English language. (laughs) This this sounds really, really accessible. (laughs) Yes, this was tremendously accessible. Here we are on a podcast and what we want to do is make things as accessible for you listeners as we can. But I just said binding theoretical construct, which is the very opposite effect, obviously. But what this was, was me trying to explain to this client who wanted to create a book that had like 50 chapters on how to live an optimal life. He was this wealthy guy and he was the most intense dude I'd ever met. He does things from 5 in the morning to 10 p.m. at night every day, completely ripped six-pack, like The guy was hardcore and he wrote a book. He wanted to write a book proposal that was equally hardcore. And he had all these like pieces of information and facts and figures and all these things one after another after another. And I wanted to kill myself reading this. It's like, there's no way I would ever do all of this. And I'm a fairly disciplined guy. And even I couldn't handle all of this. And so what I tried to get him to come around to was instead of 50 chapters on all the 50 things, I wanted him to teach the reader one thing. A binding magical contract? Sorry, I changed it a little bit. I a binding magical contract would have been great. <laughs> what was it? A, a binding, binding theoretical construct. construct. Oh, construct, not concept. Okay. Yes. Okay. Concept would still be even better. <laughs> okay. So you can imagine the conversation I had with my client that he should have a binding theoretical construct, and he said, no. <laughs> I was not affected. Did you first say, What? <laughs> I can't even, I can't even best laid plans and all now. Anyway. So that was kind of a humorous moment of failure for me, but what I honestly couldn't get out of my head was this idea that there was something about the few times in life. Cause again, I did not do, I, I got good grades in school, but I didn't absorb anything. I wasn't effective I was an effective student in my mind in that I was somehow synthesizing the things that were taught to me and going out in the world in a more productive and meaningful way. That didn't happen, except a few times. And when I remember the few times it happened, and when I thought about the TEDx talks and the TED talks and the other and the books that I read that really did stick with me, I realized that there was a difference between having 10 or 20 or like my client 50 different things in a book and only having one thing. Mm. 
I realized that there was some real juice in that. So I started studying TED Talks far more closely. And I even volunteered for a TEDx event down in San Diego once. And what I realized is that there was this specific kind of sentence that showed up again and again and again in all of these different things. And with the clarity that that, what the sentence basically is, is a recipe or secret sauce. Mm. I might have, I'm a TED speaker and I might have talked to you guys for 18 minutes, but everything I just said in those 18 minutes comes down to one sentence. Mm. Or The Art of War by Sun Tzu is my favorite example in that he might write this long book with all these long-winded things about warfare, but on line 18 of the first chapter, he says, all of warfare is deception. It's a one-sentence recipe to succeed at war. Mm -hmm. And so what I realized my purpose actually is, or what I thought I wanted it to be at the time, at the very least, was to be evangelical about getting this silver bullet type thing, this secret sauce, out into the world. Mm. And I started teaching workshops on it locally here in Los Angeles. And I tried to market myself with the silver bullet concept and all of that. But what I didn't understand is that there wasn't a single person on this planet who woke up in the morning thinking, oh, I really should find a silver bullet today. Uh That's not how marketing works, ladies and gentlemen. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. People do not want to be marketed your solution. They want to be marketed how to solve their problems. There it is. And so what I wound up realizing is that my purpose might have been to get the word out about this one-sentence recipe thing, this not binding theoretical construct but something else, right? What I realized is that I wanted to do that, but I wasn't aligned with it. Mm, say more. As in, I wasn't aligned with how to make that something people wanted. I didn't have a process. So what happened? I had to go back to driving Lyft. I had to take money out of my Roth IRA. I had to continue to struggle and barely make ends meet because I couldn't figure out how to take what I wanted to share with the world and do it in a way that would actually attract a, lively, a livelihood. And so... I went into some pretty dark times there because I'm this guy who apparently, according to you at the beginning of the episode, is erudite and apparently learned, and I'm driving people around. I was getting very good reviews on Lyft, by the way. (laughs) I think this is very important to point out that I was doing a great job as a driver. And I even, but what was funny is that I started to use the silver bullet concept as a way to actually talk to my passengers. Mm. I remember this one time there was this photographer and he was really, he, I just picked him up at the end of a work day. He was clearly having a bad day and I asked him about his work. He's a commercial photographer. He takes photos for catalogs and he was clearly didn't want to talk to me, but for whatever reason I pushed on it a little bit and I asked him about his process. He said, well, how do you get good images out of your subjects? And he started talking about how he surprises them with things and he wants them to be emotionally genuine and authentic. And that gets the best images, gets the most authentic images. And I said, well, it sounds like that the most authentic, valuable images are the result of introducing the unexpected into the shoot. And he's sitting there. 
I was looking at the road, ladies and gentlemen. I was not looking at him, but I got the sense he was kind of looking around and thinking about that for a moment. And he said, that's exactly it. I introduced the unexpected, and then I get these great images. And suddenly he's mulling things over, and he's thinking about it, and we talked about it a bit more. And what I essentially did in a few minutes was help this commercial photographer to find his silver bullet. Yeah. I helped him to do this thing to clarify what his thing was, basically. Yeah. If he was to go and pitch himself to a prospective client now, he could say, oh, here's how I get the results that I get. And here's how I'm different. Here's how I'm different. Other commercial photographers. Exactly. I have a process. It's different from everyone else's. And it can pretty much guarantee you the great results that I know I can get for you. It's a secret sauce. And I told the story about the photographer because I have this saying that there's no shame in the granite quarry. I'm sorry, what? There's no shame in the granite quarry. The granite quarry. Granite quarry. Okay. So, what this is, is a reference to Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead, which is one of the books... See? Hashtag erudite. Hashtag erudite. Well, I said earlier that I was reading pretty ambitious books between when I discovered reading... That you, hate, that you didn't hate books anymore? Can we talk about how amazing it is that you didn't read at all while you were growing up, and then you became uh, someone in publishing? Right. And, I mean, that is hilarious in, you know, the divine plan or whatever, like... You weren't reading Nancy Drew and what the Boxcar Kids. I forget what was that other series. Like all of the YA stuff, you just completely skipped. Oh yeah, Young Pearson reading and jumped to like John Irving. Like right, guys. If you've not read that, it's really dense. It's yeah. not like starting with something light and working your way in. And I have an, a question about that John Irving book later on that we'll get to. But of course, continue. Of course, Sorry. I'll always talk about John Irving. Being, that, that all said, I read The Fountainhead in the years before I got my Penguin job. And that was actually one of the books I talked about with my former boss. And we bonded over it because he had read The Fountainhead as well. And at one point, it's about this architect. He's kind of loosely the inspiration, or he was inspired by Frank Lloyd Wright. He had his own way of doing things, and no one would hire him, and it was the Depression. So he had to go and work in a granite quarry. And he was the most mindful and intentional in the work. He was the most confident and capable. And he did the work of the Granite Quarry until he got a call one day that said, with a prospective client from before the Depression, said, oh, I got my board on board and we're ready to build and I want you and come to New York and we'll build the building. So he left the Granite Quarry and he never went back. But the point is that he didn't forsake the work in the quarry. He took it seriously. He did it with intentionality and purpose. And I always thought of that when I was driving for Lyft. And I always thought, okay, there's no shame in the granite quarry if I try to serve my passengers well. And so I would be the guy with the 4.97 out of 5 star rating. And if I ever went down to below 4.9 something, I really took it hard because I wasn't in the granite quarry anymore. I was, I was doing a bad job as a driver kind of thing. Mm. But it wound up being fine. I was almost always a 4.9 or 5.0 driver. Not that it really mattered, but it mattered to me because I wanted to show up with competence mm. and capability, even in such a low-level job or mm. supposedly low-level job. And so the lift part of my story is very important to me because I no longer drive for lift. 
I no longer struggle. I do, I do very well with the silver bullet concept and in helping various influencers and thought leaders with their content because I stuck with it. I stuck with it. I made it through the dark times with Lyft because of how fully committed to that particular purpose I was. Mm. And so I feel a very important question for us to ask ourselves in defining and pursuing our purpose is how can I actually persevere through the tough times? Mm. How can I actually make this happen when I am in the granite quarry or I'm somehow doing something that is a departure from that purpose or seemingly so. And what I think about, basically my response to that question for myself is the reason why I was able to stick with it. And the reason why I was so devoted to getting this secret sauce, silver bullet like concept out into the world is because it was so painful for me to think about how hard it was to read as a small child. Mm. To circle back to my younger days, I didn't just not like school. I hated it. I happened to be blessed with the ability to do homework, so that's fine. But I never studied for any tests except for two exams in my sophomore year of college. But I was able to float by and get the A-minus type of GPA without doing any of any real hardcore work or anything like that. I was so miserable in school. And frankly, my home life was not exactly that pleasant. And so there was a lot of charge and a lot of juice around how disempowered I felt as a young person and the empowerment I eventually did feel from reading. I felt tremendously empowered by the written word when I got out of school, basically. I, I, I looked at my life and I figured things out in a way I never had before, all because of reading. And so I became tremendously invested in the concept and value of content. I became, so basically my purpose is a result of my greatest pain Mm. that I felt so disempowered and lost as a child. And that content was my way out of that feeling. And that's how I was able to really make it through the dark days of driving for Lyft and any other things that were a departure from what I really wanted to be doing. So, Couple questions. Um, when you read the John Irving book, um, and it depressed you, mm. it was. It sounds like it was the fact that it depressed you. It was the fact that it had such an impact on you that was a catalyst for change. Is that true? Absolutely. Okay. So it was like, holy shit! I read this book, and I'm really depressed. Like, I really had an emotional response to this. It affected my life. How did it do that? Is that, is that like, around what it, what it was like? Absolutely. Okay. So there was a sense of, almost like a sense of, like, of curiosity around it. And that's something I just want to pull out as a theme because I think, you know, there's a lot of ways for us to consider our purpose and consider quote unquote finding our purpose or pursuing our purpose or whatever it is. But one thing that I keep hearing when I'm asking people about this is there's a sense of natural curiosity mm. that somehow becomes involved somewhere in there. It's like a person's just naturally curious. Like 
someone who becomes, let's say a therapist is like, how do people heal? How do you get better? How do I get better? And there's, of course, there's a driving factor of like, I feel like shit. I want to get better. Mm-hmm. But there's also a curiosity of like, how does this work? Mm-hmm. Like, how does this process work? Versus someone who's like, really loves numbers and spreadsheets and putting things together. They're not that interested in how mm-hmm. does a person get over trauma? That's not their, their natural curiosity might be something around numbers and physics and things like that. And they're like genuinely like, but how does the Fibonacci sequence work? Mm-hmm. Why is that a thing? And for them, that's their natural curiosity. Whereas the healer doesn't give a shit about the Fibonacci sequence. Mm-hmm. They couldn't, they would be unhappy if they tried to do that. So I find it interesting that the natural curiosity was, why did this book affect me so much? Mm-hmm. How did that happen? Like what, what the hell just happened? <laughs> like I got hit by a train with this book. Like, how did he do that? Kind of. Right. And I, I really like that now because what you really have highlighted is that it curiosity is not, at least for me, and we could split hairs on this. I'm sure curiosity for me is not really driven by asking what, as in what's next. Because what's my job now? Okay, what's my next job? And what's the next thing after that? It's why did this happen? What is the root cause of this thing that's happening right now? Mm. For me, at least, that's the driving force of a truly curious life. Is asking why did this happen? And then how could it potentially happen again? Yeah, then the other thing that I, I heard loudly in your story was you know, in the dark days of driving for Lyft, which, by the way, I think would be a great name for a play or something. Um, <laughs> um, <clears throat> you were still taking action. You were still working with some clients. You were still hosting workshops for a couple of your friends or a couple of people around the silver bullet concept or whatever the first iteration of it was, which was, you know, magical. The binding theoretical construct. <laughs> binding theoretical it's so catchy. I've now forgotten it twice. <laughs> it should be the title of the episode. 20 minutes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so you were still taking action and moving forward and doing things around. Mm-hmm. It's almost like funny. I mentioned the Fibonacci sequence, but it's like circling around a dot, getting closer and closer and closer to the dot dot. Mm. I feel like that's kind of like how, how it can be for many of us humans mm. approaching our purpose. It's like, you're like moving around it, getting slowly closer, but it's a circuitous route. It's not right. like A and then B. It's like A, D, F, Z, N, mm-hmm. X, P. Like you're like going around, you're getting closer, you're circling it like a shark or something. Mm-hmm. And then maybe it's emerging. Or like for me, it's felt like a Polaroid picture that's taken like 15 years to emerge. Mm-hmm. But it was there. It's just like cloudy and it got clearer, but it wasn't like one day the picture arrived in the mail. Like that has not been my experience. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so it wasn't like you were just numbing out, you know, dark days of lift, like driving for lift, coming home, watching Netflix, smoking marijuana, going to sleep. You weren't just numbing out mm-hmm. in, your, in your time. You were also, you know, taking action, doing things, trying, you know, looking, I don't know, seeking, I guess. Yeah, admittedly, with greater success on some days than others. Absolutely. There were particularly bad days where I really did numb out. My vice of choice was always the moving image, screens, watching movies, watching TV, that sort of thing. 
I never had a drug or alcohol problem. It's never been something that's been an issue. I've not had an issue with eating either. That happened to be my thing. And there were days where it was like that. But concurrent to that, I was also pursuing my thing. Mm-hmm. And so so now, you, so let's fast forward. So you are, let's say, still in Topanga, dark days of lift. Um, was there a breakthrough? Did you start to get closer to, you know, like, for example, at what moment did you switch your vernacular from binding magical contract to silver bullet? Was that a breakthrough day? Like, you know, how, what was the sort of breakthrough that got you, you propelled you out of Topanga, so to speak? I would say that I actually was propelled out of Topanga when my landlord said I had to move. Okay. <laughs> he was going to rent out the house to tenants and they weren't going to rent it with a person living in the basement. And <laughs> when you so, said that makes it sound really creepy. It, <laughs> like it's, a random person living in the basement. It's the sort of thing where... It's a plot point in The Dark Days of Lyft. Well, The Dark Days of Lyft did lend itself very well to some apparently creepy images. If I was living in a little house out in the middle of nowhere, I wouldn't want a stranger living right underneath me with no one else around either. That is totally fair. Totally fair. I, I think that that would very much be a thing. Anyway, so I moved back down to the city of Los Angeles, and I was still in the dark days. And I was still trying to work out my stuff and getting some work here and there. Again, it's a pretty monotonous recurring theme of a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And I started teaching workshops on the concept. By this point, I had upgraded the concept to core belief. The core belief was what I called it. And I gave workshops on the core belief and people sort of got it, sort of didn't. And the irony of giving those workshops is that I didn't have a sentence, the one-sentence recipe, for one-sentence recipes. Mm. I thought I did. And then I said it in the workshop, and they're like, yeah, I'm sorry, Neil, I don't really know what you mean by that. It was the least clear part of the workshop, and yet it was supposed to be the most clear. Two days later, I was taking a shower, and I suddenly had my sentence. I had my silver bullet, four silver bullets, and, or at least technically at that point, it was core belief for core beliefs. And then I... Who was it? Are you holding this in suspense? Well, I can certainly say what we falsely think when we're getting up and speaking or writing a book or whatever is that our audience wants information. They want knowledge. And that's not true. They want change. They want to be empowered to create that change. And so the sentence is, people are empowered not by knowledge or not by that which they know is true rather that which they believe is possible. Mm. So the job of a speaker, the job of an author, who's in this nonfiction kind of world, is to empower people to believe in a different possibility. And when they do believe in that possibility, that's when they convert at the end. That's when they buy a program. That's when they book a call. Book a call. That's when they go do to a workshop. Go to a workshop. Do whatever the next thing is. It's not because they've gotten good information. It's because they believe that this can work for them. They believe they can change they can with change. the help of this. Right. Right. So I figured it out. I still didn't have my marketing problem solved, though, and I still drove for Lyft and still did all the things that just to make ends meet. Meanwhile, I'm living in a very expensive city. And then in 2017, I finally had the aha moment of aha moments. This is when I took what I already understood about this concept 
and I lined it with the marketplace. And I realized that who is it that has that, what marketers call the bleeding neck problem, that, oh my God, I need to solve this problem right now, or it's going to be really, really bad. And I figured out that it's the public speaker who has a keynote speech at a conference coming up in a month or two and doesn't know what to say. So I created a Facebook-based marketing funnel with a webinar laced with silver bullet-like concepts, and I put it out there. And I didn't even have to optimize it. Marketers talk about split testing and trying this and trying that. I didn't have to do any of that. All of a sudden, because I understood how I needed to convey value in very little time, because I had this sentence thing going on, my (laughs) webinar wound up being very powerful and converted a lot of people to calls. Yeah. And a lot of people got on board with it. And that was it. And it was through... And actually, I admit this, in the earliest version of my teaching people about this, I sometimes called it a silver bullet, and sometimes I called it a core belief, sometimes I called it this and that, but people really responded to the silver bullet concept as a term, and that's what it's called now, because the marketplace dictated what it wanted. Mm. The concept itself never changed, just what, so I went, the evolution is from binding theoretical construct to silver bullet, and many iterations in between. Yeah. And I'm curious, like, for you personally, it sounds, I mean, when you describe it, it very much sounds like you found that missing puzzle piece. Mm. Like, it put it puts it into the puzzle, and you're like, this, this is how you connect with your audience. Mm-hmm. This is how you succeed. This is how you sound like a boss on Ellen. This is how you get invited back. Mm-hmm. Like, you really feel like you can really serve your clients mm-hmm. now. Where before you were like, I mean, I'm kind of serving them, but then they get on Oprah and I cringe at what they're saying because I'm mm-hmm. like, you're doing exactly. it wrong. Like, there's something you're doing wrong, but I can't quite figure out what it is. Exactly. Okay, so now, so I'm curious, like, for you as an individual person, not just you as a professional person, mm-hmm. how has this, like, figuring that part out, like, affected your your self esteem, like your concept of yourself or your your own sort of empowerment? Well, I can look at how I, thank you for that question. Yeah. I can look at how I used to show up at parties where I was, I had this vague sense that I'd prefer just to talk to a couple of people more in depth than have a thousand light conversations. And that was always the case. But since I figured out what this purpose is and how I can show up and be of value, whether I'm talking about this thing or not, what this has done for me, if I show up a party, at a party now, I feel like I've totally arrived. I can just show up and no matter who I talk to, I know I can show up for them and be a completely present person. Not that I'm helping everyone at parties to figure out their silver bullets. It's more that I know that I have something of value to contribute to the world Mm. and I can show up for the other person because I know that I've helped all these people in rather remarkable ways. And it's not, again, I don't have to be helping every person I talk to. It just helps me to arrive. Mm. It helps me to say, Hey, I would love to talk to you. If you don't, and if you don't want to talk to me, that's really okay. There'll be somebody who will want to talk to me. I don't take the tension and awkwardness around a misaligned social contact 
nearly as personally as I used to. Mm. If I ask out a woman and she's not interested in me, I'm like, all right, that's fine. It really is fine. And if I do any number of things in any sort of social settings that would have otherwise been very awkward and painful for me, I'm not saying I'm free of pain. I'm not saying I'm free of any kind of tension. But I'm able just to find my way out of it so much faster because I know the world could really use my help and I'm having an impact on it. So, yeah, I'm glad you brought up the dating thing because I'm curious just um, briefly if you would speak to, like, how has this knowing this and, and not just knowing it, but this is your profession now. Mm-hmm. This is what you do. And there's a lot of, I think, power that comes from that of doing, doing, quote unquote, doing your purpose, like Mm -hmm. doing it as an earning, earning from that. Mm -hmm. Um, Not everybody gets there and not everybody has to get there. But I Mm -hmm. think there's a special, there's a special kind of power that comes from that Mm -hmm. inner, inner power. Um, How has that impacted? Like, what was your dating life like before? um, And what is it like now? You know, it's an interesting question, Mel. And first of all, full disclosure, I've not been doing a lot of dating very recently because I've just been focused on this this, and doing this and making this happen. But what I do know is that in the earlier days, in the dark days, and I did try to do the apps and the dating and the whole thing, I honestly don't feel like the women ever felt me. They could tell that I was smart and they could tell that I was curious and I asked them questions and stuff like that. But I got a lot of first dates that I thought went really well. And now I thought they went really well, but then they would actually kind of fizzle out and they would say, no, thank you. I don't want to go out with you again. And it happened repeatedly. And while I am single right now, since I've gone through this shift, I have, I guess I would say I've not had any problem with that in the time since Mm -hmm. that if someone basically it's kind of up to me to decide if I'm interested in someone and whether I want to go out, I'm not saying everyone will go out with me or anything like that, but I absolutely, there's something, it's far more intangible. It's something I'm probably going to struggle with articulating precisely, but there's something more magnetic. There's something people just seem to be more curious about me. Let's say women specifically, there does seem to be more curiosity because I fully arrived in the conversations I have with them. I really like that term fully arrived. And what it makes me think of is like really having two feet on the ground, Mm. like not teetering or like being sort of off balance, um, but really standing firm and being present and uh, yeah, having arrived. I think Mm -hmm. there's something powerful about that. Like you're standing up, like you're standing up Mm. and you're, and you're here. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Cool. That's really, um, that's really interesting to what you said about like your, um, magnetism and your feeling like it's up to me. Like I'm either going to pursue her or not Mm -hmm. rather than like, well, maybe I'll get a second date 
Right. Maybe I'll, like there's sort of like teetering energy of like I'm not really sure, mm-hmm. like da 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 da, versus like okay, I might ask her out, I might not, but there's like an internal. That's what it is. There's like an internal sense of control versus mm-hmm. an external sense of maybe. Yeah, a self possession. Yeah, self possession. Okay, so, um, so we're gonna start to wrap up, and I'm just wondering. Well, I have several sort of questions. One is, um, if you could give your 20-something self any advice, like if you were looking back and you could give younger Neil some advice, what would you say? Wow. Okay. Uh, 20-something Neil was a fairly belligerent and moody guy. I think, oh, wow, that's a good question. I I think I would have told him to find find more people I could cry in front of. Mm. And the reason I say that, I mean, I was that little kid in first grade who cried all the time. And then by sixth or seventh grade, I felt so humiliated by it that I just clamped down on it and I just didn't cry anymore. And I sublimated a lot of pain. And I think I would have told my younger self to set that intention to find a couple of people and make that intention known. I'm just looking, I I want to spend time with you. I'm looking just to break this down and feel safer and make my intention to feel safer known to people. That's pretty, I think, yeah, it took me a moment to get there, but I think that's really my answer is to have more intentionally found relationships that I could feel safe in. Mm-hmm. because I didn't feel that at all and haven't felt it until much more recently in life. I feel like I missed out on a lot of great relationships and experiences because I was so self-protective. Mm-hmm. And so what I will say is becoming aligned with how I'm meant to show up in this world really helped me to find that sense of safety in myself. So my, my way of doing it was through my profession. There are other ways to do it as well, obviously. But yeah, for my younger self, I absolutely would have liked for him to have been willing to show up in relationships a bit more. And find safe people. Find safe people. Find safe people. Yeah, I really like that as, a, um, as we wrap here because I think what you just described is really... Um, it's one of the things that I feel the most um, empathy and care for is the, is young men and, and, and boys, right? So actual Mm -hmm. young boys growing into young men, because you're right. We do, we shame, we tend to shame emotion out of them. And then there are this, there's this whole host of social problems that happen because of that. Mm. So I, I'm a huge advocate of men, having their feelings and and finding safe people with whom to have their feelings and having places to express those feelings. Like, you know, if it's rage, do you know, obviously don't beat up on someone, but do find a pillow and a wiffle bat. Like do mm-hmm. do that. Like do mm-hmm. find a way to express it. Cause it shouldn't be binary of like either I, you know, lash out at other people or animals or I do nothing at all. There should mm-hmm. be, a, you know, there should be right. healthy outlets for these things. And, 
you know, that's a big part of why I do this show. And it seems like a theme that comes up a lot mm. for the men that have, you know, gotten to the other side is I had to find my feelings mm. and I had to somehow express them and be around safe people, whether that was a therapist or other friends or men's group or all the things that we talk about on here. It seems like that is one of the keys to like healthy masculinity. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I like that. That's where it sort of ended up of like find safe people and yeah. that will enhance your life. And it also sounds like somehow it feels tied to the purpose thing too. You know, it feels like it's, it, it's in there somewhere. I can't quite put my finger on it, but it feels involved. Right. Well, if we make the assumption that no man really is an island, then discovering our purpose is a nice thing in theory that we could do all on our own. But the fluidity and the greater possibility that comes from doing it in Congress with others is just off the charts amazing. It wasn't until I gave the workshop in front of other people and they didn't understand it, that my brain aligned to what it was supposed to be. Yeah, that's a really good point. You needed the interaction, interaction. other people to, to right. pinpoint it and to find it and to sort of right. define it, actually. Right, exactly. And if we look at numbing ourselves as the default setting for those of us who are struggling in this area of our life, then what the other people help to do is create that sense of safety and help us to not escape the pain that we're in because we're not fully in our purpose yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really like that. I also like that as like a, a takeaway or a start is to maybe just, if you, you know, are one of those people struggling to find your purpose or wandering around in the dark days of whatever your version of that is for me, it was working as a sushi restaurant waitress. Oh, lovely. Got there story um but just to start talking to safe people or even a safe person like I want to know my purpose Mm -hmm. I want to find the thing that I'm really that lights me up and Mm -hmm. just have just starting to have a conversation with a safe person Mm -hmm. about this explicitly Mm -hmm. could be the beginning you know of whatever your version of getting out there and trying something is because mm. I think it is significant that you, you did do these workshops and you had an idea of what you wanted mm-hmm. and an idea and you tested it out. You just you went and did something about it. Mm. Um, Cause I think if we only spend time in our head thinking about it and we're not having those conversations with safe people, that's, you know, not as productive a lot of the time, right? Very, very rarely sometimes, but most of the time we're just in our head. Right. Absolutely. Okay, cool. So any last words of wisdom or thoughts on purpose before we end? Well, it's interesting. This is kind of the flip side of the finding the people is also give yourself permission to go and take yourself on a little retreat, even if it's just for a weekend or something and say, this is why I'm here. I'm here to really work on finding some clarity for myself. And it could just be stream thought writing. It could be, reading some books that you really like. I recommend Mastery by Robert Greene as a great example of a book about people who really did commit themselves to their purpose on an ongoing basis. Do whatever it is that you feel is going to help get you there, or even bring a couple of people with you and do a little mastermind in a retreat or something like that, because changing our physical space 
has a tremendous amount of power in changing our mindset or changing the trajectory of our relationship to something. So if you say, this is what I'm doing in this space, it's what Topanga was for me. I just did, you don't have to do it for three years. You could do it for a couple of days or go and stay in Chiang Mai, Thailand for a month. You can live on $10 a day in that city. Anyway, the point is, is that by separating yourself from your typical life and doing it with that intentionality, you might attract a fair amount of clarity as well. Love it. Yeah. Get out there, people. It's 2019. This is Mel signing off from Los Angeles, California. I liked how you said Los Angeles and not LA. That wraps up another episode of Dear Men. Thank you for listening. If you want to reach out, we would love to hear from you. We're on Instagram and Twitter at Dear Men Podcast. That's at Dear Men Podcast. Or Facebook, we have a group, Dear Men Podcast. We also have an email address, dearmenpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to join the Big Sexy Dataset, the community of people who regularly respond to the surveys that we talk about on this podcast, just email us at that address, dearmenpodcast at gmail.com, and we will set you up. Have a sexy day. Sexy day.